the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Thursday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com. You get podcasts there as you can on iTunes and Spotify at Dan Proft on social media including Parler at Dan Proft. And uh, we begin uh, by this uh, note of optimism from Dan Henninger in the Wall Street Journal. Hey, Trumpians, cheer up. Well, I think there's good reason to be cheerful in some respects and uh, still holding out on some of the matters pending in terms of counts, claims, and court cases. But uh, we talked a a bit about the pickups, the Republican pickups in the House, which were substantial and... um, Uh, devastating, really, to Democrats. Dan Hendricks points out something else. The strongest evidence that the GOP won't be spending a generation in any post-Trumpian wilderness is that the National Conference of State Legislature's map of partisan legislative control. It shows a lot of red right now, most notably total control in four states where Democrats hope to flip at least one chamber, Texas, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and North Carolina, as well as such important battlegrounds as Georgia, Ohio, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, New Hampshire, Many of these Republican legislatures will be drawing congressional district maps next year. New York and California will each lose a House seat, California, for the first time ever. Uh, it always is, is good to remember control of state houses uh, and remember how important your state and local officials are in terms of, you know, frankly, more consistent impact on the quality of your life on a daily basis. And we'll... Uh, get later in the hour to the inbound and outbound state numbers that uh, speak to that. But uh, let's return to the House, and we're pleased to be joined now by someone I am just uh, tickled to call Congressman-elect. He is our friend Burgess Owens, NFLer, Super Bowl champion, author of Why I Stand, From Freedom to the Killing Fields of Socialism, and newly minted congressman from Utah, one of the Republican pickups on November 3rd. Burgess Owens, Thanks for joining us, and congratulations. Great job. Dan, thank you so much. And I just want to thank uh, American people. I, I, I have so much faith in American people in Utah. And they will always do the right things at the right time for the right reasons. And this this last one was a good good, good, good example of that. We now have truly a house, I mean, a, 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 a freshman team that, that represents America. I mean, we have different backgrounds, colors, uh, uh, places of origin, but we, we all have a love for our country. And it's just it's going to be obvious as you start hearing more from us. And we're going to be very, very tight. Uh, and, and we now know, again, what American leadership looks like with our president. So get ready. We get ready out there, America. We're going to have a, a good couple of years and then win back the House and, and do, do much more. It was, it, for sure. it was interesting, Nancy Pelosi, trying to rationalize away the defeats here, almost losing the House remarkably. 
Uh, she said uh, it was the result of President Trump at the top of the ticket. She was saying President Trump was an albatross around the neck of the Republican Party right up until the results started coming in. Now the reason that uh, 9 to 12 seats were picked up is because of President Trump. Well, the lesson to learn from uh, from this last process, don't, limit, don't listen to Democrats. Um, you know, again, uh, we, we have a, a way of always drifting toward the light. Uh, we now understand because of the last three years that we've been under, under attack for a long time, Dan. This is not something new. Uh, we've had this, these termites of uh, socialists and Marxists uh, working within our institutions for a long time, and, uh, and they almost got us. But uh, thank goodness we, back in tw- uh, you know, uh, 2016, we got the right president in place, leadership, and now we're going to have, uh, uh, have a good house. Uh, we just need now to get back this, to make sure we keep hold of the Senate. If I, if I can say one thing, that we're fighting for the hearts of our nation around the country. Do what you can to help our senators win in, in Georgia. We get that done with. And we can uh, hold the line for another couple of years until we get uh, get back to house. Let, sure. let, let's talk about your seat in Utah, because as I mentioned, I mean, some people say Utah, well, that's Republican. Well, it was a it was a pickup. It was held by a Democrat. It was a Democrat who had defeated Mia Love two years ago, a bright star in the Republican Party, African-American uh, woman, Mia Love. But uh, she ran into a, a bit of consternation with Trump. <clears throat> And it seemed to cost her in 2018 in the midterms. Uh, how do you uh, explain away, or ex- not explain away, explain <laughs> your victory uh, on November 3rd? Well, a couple things. I think what happened is we, we just didn't, we didn't show up last time around. And we had, uh, at that time, the Democrats were trying to poise themselves as being moderates. There are people out there that call themselves moderates, but they vote every single t- time they have to with, um, with a hard left. So this last two years, we've, Americans have a chance to see there's no such thing as a moderate Democrat when you have a Pelosi leading lead their party. So uh, uh, that was a big piece of it. So the engagement, the, the folks who came out was, was very, very high. And, and all we have to do is just talk about the values across our country. The reason why, not only in Utah, but the reason why we won in so many other districts, California and all those places, uh, Donna Salida down in, in the Miami, is all we did was talk about the values that make our country what it is. And, and American-loving um, uh, Americans, no matter what side of the aisle we're on, we are, we're drawn to those values, you know, education, faith, the family, and, and the free market. So we stick to those values, uh, Dan, and, and we'll con- continue to move this thing co- forward because that's who we are. We love those options. We love the freedom that comes from it. And uh, we expect you to be uh, just as hard a hitter in D.C. as you were on the gridiron. Uh, and, and, and so when you get to, you know, what's your first order of business when you get to Congress? <clears throat> I believe in the middle class. I believe that at the end of the day, that's what we're fighting uh, the left against. And to get our middle class, we have to make sure we're educated. So education is big for me. Uh, uh, make sure we have the, the, the business owners are given a chance to go out there and fulfill their dreams of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And, uh, of course, it's going to be very, very important that we fight to make sure we keep our faith. However we worship our God, we in this country, based on Judeo-Christian values, should have the right to do that and not be bullied out of uh, of uh, of our faith based on based on where we work or where we stand every single time during the day. So those values that I think have made our country great are the ones that we'll be articulating very, very succinctly and fighting for. And we're going to get a lot of Americans on both sides of the aisle to join us. Yeah, okay. you know, I, I, look to see the Democrats joining us. You know, I, I wanted to 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 add to that and, and get your reaction to um, some of what Jason Whitlock recently wrote over at Outkick.com. He wrote, white liberals have convinced black people to take God out of the equation and replace him with Barack Obama, LeBron James, Colin Kaepernick, Black Lives Matter, all the other approved symbols of unapologetic blackness. 
I object to this insanity, writes Whitlock. Love of my skin color is not America's salvation. Random white people loving me is not the key to my happiness, freedom, or success in this country. The worship of skin color creates a dangerous level of racial division. White liberals, socialists, communists are using black people to promote racial anarchy. Wow. Listen to Jason. I, I am so impressed. Every time he opens his mouth, man. He's, he's <laughs> really good. Amazing. But he's he really nailed, good. He nailed it. He nailed it. And I'll just say this. Uh, anybody who's been on a winning team, I played with Super Bowl champions uh, back in 1981. You know, the last thing we, we're concerned about is the color of our skin, how tall we were, how much money we were making. We won that year because we put everything aside. We focused on just win, baby. We looked at bringing out talent, make sure we were, we're not the weak link. At the end of the day, we got a Super Bowl championship. That's what America's always been about. We're based on meritocracy. We look at each other inside out, not outside in. Do not let these racist leftists divide us. Because that's what they do best. They make us angry. They make white people feel guilty. Black people feel angry just because of our skin color. We cannot allow that to happen. That's not America. And, and, that's and, and we're waking up. Right. I, I, I hope, I think more people are waking up. I hope more people are waking up. It, it's not going to be overnight, but it seems like there's incremental progress. And, and I assume you're ready. You, you know, you've been in this arena now for a while. You're ready to be treated somewhat like Tim Scott has been treated, the senator from South Carolina. Uh, your proposals called token proposals and so forth because you're a black conservative. And uh, that's okay because uh, I don't care what uh, other people think. I care about my God, country, family, and uh, and respect for all the above, including authority and women. So uh, that's okay. I mean, the, the, the Americans are we always we always uh, lean uh, lean into the to the right. We we drift toward the light, and that's what I'm my my concern is and. Uh, and I think as patriots, we should all be focused on the same thing, our values and principles versus party and politicians. So let's get that done right, and we'll, we'll leave a great future for our kids. And at the end of the day, that's what we do best. We, we envision our kids as having a much better time, much uh, uh, more rewarding kid, uh, life than we ever had because we, 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 we left that aside for them. That's what we need to get done again. And, and if, if it is a Biden administration, obviously the uh, progress that was been made at the federal level on school choice because of Betsy DeVos and because of President Trump, you know, they're going to try to turn that around the teachers unions. And it's particularly important at the federal level for the D.C. scholarship program. So um, do you anticipate being one of the leading voices to protect the D.C. scholarship program and advocate for school choice, even in uh, even in the face of a Biden administration? Absolutely. That's my top priority, education. Ignorant free can never be. And I'll say this. If Biden comes on board, what's going to be good about this process is America have, have, have a chance to see the difference. Yeah, but they, have, they can now move in the next two years based on context because we know what it is to have freedom, to have opportunity, to have hope. And uh, these guys can bring nothing but darkness. So in, in a sense, it might be the opportunity for Americans to really begin to understand what we're fighting against, those who don't know it yet, because these guys can bring nothing but misery. That's their, that's their modus operandi. Uh, so I'm looking forward to whatever comes. I'm looking forward to it. And, um, and again, we'll, we'll get back to the House in the next two years by just doing our job as long as we keep the, the Senate now. So Americans, let's do what we have to do to keep this thing moving forward in the right direction. He is Burgess Owens, former NFLer, Super Bowl champion, author of Why I Stand, From Freedom to the Killing Fields of Socialism, and congressman-elect from Utah. Burgess Owens, thanks for joining us again. Congratulations. Great job. Thank you, Dan. Let's do this again soon, my friend. Take All care. Best. You take care. All right. Bye-bye. Who takes every kind of people to make what life's about, yeah. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the show. It's uh, such a refreshing experience to talk to Burgess Owens. It's so encouraging to know that you're going to have um, at least some people fighting, even if it's uh, not with President Trump still in the Oval Office, uh, fighting for this, uh, many of the same uh, policies and many of the same constituencies that President Trump fought for as President of the United States. We'll see. And so let's talk about that a little bit more. This idea that the uh, this this idea that just continues to confound that the president pursuing his legal rights in courts of law is a disruption of democracy. Uh, Joe Biden made the point yesterday, uh, you know, decrying his lack of a concession. So anxious is everyone to get Trump to quickly concede and be done with all of this business. Stop pursuing your legal rights. Stop asking questions. I I am optimistic, but we should be further along. One of the problems that we're having now is the failure of the administration to recognize. The law says that the General Services Administration has a person who recognizes who the winner is. And then they have to have access to all the data and information that the government possesses to be prepared. And it doesn't require there to be an absolute winner. It says the apparent winner, the apparent winner. And uh, we've been unable to get access to the kinds of things we need to know about the depth of the stockpiles. We know there's not much at all. We get to the point where we have a sense of... uh, when these vaccines comes out, how they'll be distributed, who'll be first in line, what the plan is. Um, well, what's your plan? What's your plan? Uh, tell us what should be done with specificity. And uh, that will quickly be taken to the president and asked if uh, he agrees at, in whole or in part with what you're proposing. Because actually, uh, Alex Azar talked about uh, the uh, number of doses that will be on hand as soon as the vaccines are approved. Uh, the contracting has been done with Pfizer and Moderna. The um, stockpiling, I mean, these COVID task force briefings for months and months on end, Admiral Girard would get up there and talk about uh, the, with, speci- with spe- specificity, the numbers of personal protective equipment and ventilators and the like, the distribution and the logistics uh, surrounding all of the federal government's resources. Navarro would get up and talk about the Defense Production Act and where they're employing it and to what ends and what the results are on a you know, almost a weekly, if not daily basis. Well, what is it you want to know that you don't know? Ask the questions. But it's, it's not interested in the questions. He's not interested in his plan or the president's plan. And there's uh, some discussion going on amongst experts in the scientific field, as we've talked about in this show, in terms of what the progression should be, but also a suggestion that there shouldn't be much lag time because of the capacity to reproduce these vaccines upon approval, not to mention the pre-ordering that has been done by the federal government. So, you know, the whole he needs to I mean, this really he needs to concede so that we can put his concession behind us and end all of these distractions and I can just move forward. But again, just as he got to be president uh, up until November 3rd, and I say that with respect to the Amy Coney Barrett nomination, the president uh, can uh, nominate someone to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the court. Why? He doesn't stop being president 60 days, 45 days, 30 days, five days before the election. Why can't he? Of course he can. 
And he doesn't stop being president until January 20th, if indeed uh, it's certified that Joe Biden won the election. Isn't that right? So he's still doing things like, oh, I don't know, uh, recalling 2,000 troops from Afghanistan. He's still the president of the United States and enjoys those powers of office. This is controversial. So much controversy. There's Joe Biden. How about Milwaukee Mayor Tom Barrett, two-time loser to Governor Scott Walker in Wisconsin? Uh, Tom Barrett had an interesting reaction to the Trump campaign moving forward, initiating, paying for the uh, partial recount in Wisconsin of Milwaukee and Dane counties. This is what uh, the good mayor of Milwaukee had to say about that. It's not surprising. Um, after a failed presidency, after a failed campaign, um, that the Trump campaign would now seek to have a what will soon be failed recount effort. Um, in fact, it's a, a very futile attempt to try to disrupt democracy in the most democratic counties in the state of Wisconsin. Um, but that should be no surprise to anyone, because after four years of uh, racial attacks, after four years of attacks on cities, after four years of attempting to divide people, um, why wouldn't President Trump end his presidency on one last failed attempt to divide us? Yeah, um, he's dividing us, but Democrats are not. It's interesting to me, the words that Tom Barrett used. Feudal attempt to disrupt democracy in the most Democratic counties in Wisconsin. I think he's confusing small d democracy with big D Democrat Socialist Party. Uh, it's not uh, disrupting democracy, small d. It's disrupting Democrat Socialists, big D. Right, Tom? Because otherwise you'll have to explain to me that phrase, futile attempt to disrupt democracy. It may turn out to be futile. We'll see. But an attempt to disrupt democracy, how is pursuing one's rights under a statute enacted via a small d democratic process an attempt to disrupt democracy? It's an expression of democracy, in fact, isn't it? But again, there's no time for that. We uh, uh, can't be on a December 8th and 14th timeline. We have to go, go, go. There's uh, the COVID crisis. There's the COVID relief package. There's the things that uh, the president of the United States, who's Donald Trump, can still and is still dealing with as the president. And then he hands the baton to Joe Biden, if, again, Joe Biden is certified as the winner in about three weeks. But I, I just find it um, noteworthy that, uh, again, pursuing one's legal rights openly and notoriously, that is a disruption of democracy. That is a threat to the republic. Spending four years accusing the president of the United States of treason without evidence. That is not disruptive of democracy. Fascinating. Also uh, this, too, and just in terms of the um, 21st century era of good feelings the Biden administration is going to usher in, right? The end of the divisiveness of which Tom Barrett spoke, right? Hmm. Uh, David Atkins is a elected member of the Democrat National Committee. He's also a contributor to left-wing rags like Washington Monthly and Prospect. Here's what he tweeted. No, seriously, how do you deprogram 75 million people? Where do you start? Fox, Facebook, 
we have to start thinking in terms of post-World War II Germany or Japan or the failures of Reconstruction in the South. Right. Um, the Biden administration needs to get about uh, deprogramming Trump voters. You know, the 21st century Nazis, like in post-World War II Germany. Mm. Feel the, the unity of spirit, the uh, amelioration of hard feelings. Mm-hmm. Oh, the promise of a Biden administration, huh? This is Dan Fox. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Um, Picking up where we left off on the break, there's uh, the problem of suggesting that uh, following small-D democratic processes is somehow undemocratic. This is the allegations made by the left against President Trump for pursuing his legal rights in courts of law. There's also call for pumping the brake when it comes to assuming facts not in evidence with respect to some of the fraud allegations, including the manipulation vote tabulations by voting machines, the the hardware and software infrastructure. Um, But with respect to those claims being dismissed out of hand, this report done by none other than one John Oliver last year in 2019, in advance of the 2020 election. John Oliver is sort of this insufferable, snarky comedian who attempts to be serious sometimes. Uh, he's a hard leftist like most uh, who would be given a show to host on HBO. But he did this rather sober report on voting machines in America uh, gave, with some decent historical perspective. And you may be surprised what he found. Now, in 2019, when he did this report, of course, he was focused on what the left was focused on, which was perpetuating the notion of a Russian hacked election, because, of course, Donald Trump is a Russian stooge. He's Putin's man in D.C. He's the Manchurian candidate. And so how will Russia hack our election? But as you listen to what John Oliver reported, remember that what he's suggesting Putin could do, anybody with bad motives and a little bit of planning could potentially do. So it's certainly relevant what he found last year. Senate report found that some of our voting equipment is aging and vulnerable to exploitation by a committed adversary. So tonight, let's talk about our voting machines. And first, you should know, there is no single standard voting system in this country. In some places, uh, you vote by filling out a paper ballot uh, and feeding it into a machine. At others, you press a button, get a printout, and then have that scanned into a different machine. Uh, And at still others, you press a touchscreen, and that's it. That's the whole voting process. And while that last option may seem like the best, it's actually, for reasons that we'll get into later, the absolute worst. Mm -hmm. He's referring to direct recording electronic voting voting machines, DREs, as they're called, that don't have a paper trail. They're paperless. Uh, He talked about uh, concerns with respect to hacking. There is also the threat of someone gaining control of them for their own ends, because voting machines are technically computers, and computers, of course, are hackable. And it can be far easier to control a machine than you might expect. Voting machine companies and election officials will tell you that hacks like that one take place in very controlled settings, and that it would be difficult to do that in an actual booth without people noticing. But it is not always as difficult to get some alone time with a machine as you might think. Professor Ed Felton of Princeton performs an exercise every election day. He drives around Princeton to various polling locations 
and he follows the prominent signs that say voting here days before the election and then he takes photographs of unattended voting machines just sitting there and that's for him to document that anybody can walk up to these voting machines and anybody can manipulate them and nobody will know uh, and then he tackled uh, what he what you heard at the outset the paperless DREs these direct recording electronic voting machines but the fact is, unless you happen to personally know everyone who votes for you on a paperless DRE machine, there is no way to verify the results. It's a pretty good case against them, which makes it, frankly, completely insane that New Jersey not only still uses them, but plans to keep using them for the 2020 election. And it's not just New Jersey. In 2016, 20% of voters voted on paperless DREs, and an estimated 12% will use them in 2020, meaning 16 million Americans spread out across all these states are set to be voting on machines that pretty much everyone agrees are deeply, deeply flawed. And if they malfunction, there could be no way of knowing. And so John Oliver, who is as virulent a Trump hater as you're going to find, has uh, this reaction to what Trump said in advance of the November 3rd election. Because what we have to do here is obvious. It's so obvious, in fact, even this guy understands it. One of the things we're learning is it's always good. It's old fashioned, but it's always good to have a paper backup system of voting. It's called paper, not <laughs> highly complex computers, paper. And a lot of states are doing that. Yeah. <laughs> He's right. That's it. He's just all the way completely right. How about that? Now, vulnerability doesn't mean that something nefarious occurred. You have to prove that. And, but this is an important setup. And, you know, it comes from essentially somebody uh, who I would present as like a witness against uh, inter- or making a statement against interest, John Oliver. Now, of course, he's still prattling on now. Now he's prattling on saying Trump is wrong to <laughs> pursue his legal rights. He's wrong to demand recounts. The fraud allegations are specious because he got the outcome he wanted. This was all a concern that Trump would manipulate the election, that would it be foreign interference. No concern if there was domestic interference with an outcome he liked because he's a man of the left. But his reporting stands. And we're going to bump that up against an expert in this space when we come back with Bob Zeidman, who's the founder of Zeidman Consulting and Software Analysis and Forensic Engineering. He's also the author of Good Intentions and the Software IP Detectives Handbook. We'll be right back with Mr. Zeidman after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're pleased to be joined now by Bob Zeidman, founder of Zeidman Consulting and Software Analysis and Forensic Engineering, also author of Good Intentions and the Software IP Detectives Handbook. Bob Zeidman, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. You heard uh, some of uh, what uh, John Oliver reported back in uh, all the way back in 2019, but he was with an eye towards the 2020 election. Uh, was his reporting about the vulnerabilities of these some of these voting machines, the concerns being raised, including by election officials, including frankly, by members of Congress of both parties over the years. Are they legitimate concerns? Yeah, they're definitely legitimate concerns. You know, you and I don't like the hypocrisy of the left, where people like John Oliver, people in the media 
politicians, Democratic politicians, complain about something when it goes against them, but they love it when it goes for them. Right. And this is definitely a case of that. But I just want to say that he's over, John Oliver oversimplified the ability to hack into the machine just because it's left alone, which is not a good thing at all. But it's still a very difficult process and nearly impossible to do without eventually getting caught. And just by way of additional background, software developer for 47 years, founder of the field of software forensics. So um, this is a, a deep background in this field that you have. And so as you're hearing the arguments play out, and again, the evidence needs to be presented, but the claims are substantial. Uh, Sidney Powell, for example, I mean, in my estimation, she is staking her professional reputation on the notion that there was manipulation of the voting tabulations by somebody with the use of these systems. And I wonder how you're reacting to what you've heard and read so far. It concerns me that Sidney Powell would go and say these things. I don't know Sidney Powell, uh, but the problem is just like when Adam Schiff said he had uh, evidence that President Trump had colluded with Russians. I, I, I didn't like that. I don't like presenting, quote unquote, evidence to the media. And I don't like when Sidney Powell does it. And the reason is that if Sidney Powell had the evidence, they typically would not go to the media because they don't want to publicize to the opposing counsel that they have evidence, except in court. They want to get as close as they can to a Perry Mason moment where the other side is surprised by it well, and doesn't have time to rebut it. Just, just on that point, so this is an area where I have a little bit of expertise. I uh, am the, uh, and I can't say proud uh, possessor of a law degree, but I have a law degree. Yeah. I don't know if I should be proud of it. But, I mean, one of the things here that's different than normal cases is they have to try this case both in courts of law as well as the courts of public opinion because they need to bring the public along to believe that what they're saying is true. And so I think she's trying to essentially seed the field for what is to come, assuming that she has the evidence. I'm inclined to give her the benefit of the doubt because of her reputation, but I, I agree with you that if she doesn't prove up, she is going to very much look like Adam Schiff. Right. And that's my big concern. She's leading up. She better have the evidence. And so far, I can't find anything, anyone who claims there's evidence, anything that's presented in any court anywhere. And the other thing is, I know it's extremely difficult to find that in this short a time frame, which is unfortunate. I've worked on cases where it took a year to find evidence, a year of working nearly full time. And, and, uh, and, and this, is, this is important, too. You reference it in this piece that you wrote at The Spectator, which is very good. Spectator.org, did the voting machines lie? I will uh, tweet this out about uh, the role that you as a uh, forensic expert in this area would play in a court proceeding. So, you know, first you get the uh, the, the evidence of, uh, of of either an error or something more malicious. And then a party, a moving party like Sidney Powell on behalf of the Trump campaign would bring someone like you in, have you go through it and then go through it in a court of law as an expert witness if there was a there there. Right, exactly. That's the process. And so, um, so, so what... What's your sense, though, of the ability to you, you said uh, it's uh, that John Oliver overstated the simplicity with which you could hack into some of these machines? What if the uh, hacking was being done by people inside the House, as it were? What if it was somebody within Dominion voting systems or within Smartmatic? I'm not making a, a allegations. I'm just presenting a hypothetical. Sure. You know, my experience is that it's actually easier to find. And that's why I have doubts that it's happened, because Dominion Software, I've been reading about these cases for 20 years now, since the 2000 election, or roughly 20 years, that there have been examinations by experts. And what I've found is that those are the easiest to find. Uh, it's hard to explain it on the show here, but basically there's trails. And that's what our expertise is, finding the trails. It's harder to find. 
someone who hacked into the software who wasn't the developer because they there's there's a huge number of techniques it's extremely difficult it, it requires an, a, a huge amount of expertise in software development and understanding the systems in their entirety it usually takes people studying the systems for a long time to do it but the developers can do it pretty easily but on the, by the same token it could be found pretty easily and um if you if you were uh so an outside hacker it, you, where is the point at which you would hack if you were trying to get in and out without uh, leaving a trail? Because, you know, they're, they're, we, we, we've now heard discussions not just about the hardware and the software, but about these cloud-based servers over in Germany and Spain. So you know, where is the, the most vulnerable point? Well, certainly if they're attached to a server, Dominion claims that they're, they'd have no servers in Germany and Spain. And, and let me just add quickly that I have seen uh, allegations, some of which are in my article, that I just can't find evidence of anywhere. Uh, so I don't know if they have uh, servers in Germany and Spain. But if they do have servers connected to the internet, then you get through them. You get to them through the internet. Uh, but what happens is there are actually groups. If that's the way they hacked in, there are groups around the world that track suspicious activity on servers all over the world. And, for example, the Stuxnet virus, which was one of yeah, the most right. sophisticated hacks in history, was found by a couple of groups that were just monitoring web traffic. So if somebody hacks in through the web, uh, there are these groups that are monitoring it. Now, they may not find it for six months. So, And just to refresh, I, just to refresh people's right. recollection, the Stuxnet virus that, that disabled the Iranian nuclear reactors. I'm remembering that right? Yes, exactly. And that was the most sophisticated virus in history. And it took teams of engineers... A long time. I don't know how long. And it, it was very difficult to track. And it took months of work to track it down. But it was eventually tracked. And so if something like that happened, I would think that it would be caught if but what, people are looking for it. But would it be caught? I mean, to your point about the Sutsent virus, would it be caught in real time because it's such a high profile event, do you think, more likely? Or is it something that, uh, uh, you know, people will have to you comb through whatever you comb through. I'm not sophisticated in this area to find it. Well, that's why, yeah, they'd have to comb through it. They'd have to go through it. It would take a while. That's another reason why I'm suspicious, unfortunately, of Sidney Powell's claims that they found something. Very interesting. Bob Zeidman, founder of Zeidman Consulting and Software Analysis and Forensic Engineering, also the author of Good Intentions and the Software IP Detectives Handbook. And as I said, uh, check out his piece, spectator.org, which I'll tweet out at Dan Proft. Did the voting machines lie? Bob Zeidman, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. Take care. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and I mentioned this at the uh, top of the hour uh, in advance of our conversation with Congressman-elect Burgess Owens. We just can't say that enough. The um, inbound-outbound information for 2019, this comes to us from our friend Mark Perry, economics professor at the University of Michigan. It is a Carpe Diem blog. Before we even get to the uh, 10 inbound states, the leading states attracting people, and the 10 outbound states the 10 states repelling the most people. Before we get to that, I always love this as a quick handle on what's happening in terms of migratory patterns. One-way truck rental rates. 26-foot truck rental rates for U-Hauls, November of 
2020. From L.A. to Phoenix, two grand. From Phoenix to L.A., 250 bucks. Huh. Uh, from San Francisco to Phoenix, 2,500 bucks. From Phoenix to San Francisco, 300 bucks. Factor of an 8x difference. You're starting to figure out how California is going to lose at least one congressperson for the first time after redistricting this year in advance of 2022. One more. One more city with uh, L.A. and uh, state, excuse me, with uh, with California. L.A. to Houston, forty nine hundred bucks. Houston to L.A., eighteen hundred bucks. Forty nine hundred to eighteen hundred. San Francisco to Houston, fifty six hundred bucks. Houston to San Francisco, two grand. Uh, and uh, the disparities, the ratios are similar. If you did Chicago or New York to the places everybody's moving in the Midwest, uh, whether it's Nashville or Dallas or Austin or Florida or South Carolina, uh, the top 10 inbound and outbound states, top 10 inbound. Uh, Florida is only number four, even though it gets uh, most of the ink. Arizona, number one, actually, although I think that's going to slow after Arizonans pass that almost doubling of the state income tax and incomes over 250 grand on November 3rd. Idaho, number two, everybody wants to live in Sun Valley. Again, f- flight from California. That's repopulating uh, Arizona and Idaho. South Carolina, three, Florida, Nevada, Tennessee, Texas, North Carolina, Colorado. The bottom states, the states leading the nation in out-migration. New York State with a bullet. Now, this is 2019, but uh, they may widen their margin over Illinois in the second slot after 300,000 people uh, fled Manhattan during the pandemic, at least as reported. New York, number one, Illinois, New Jersey, Louisiana, California. Those are the five states leading the out-migration. Maryland, New Mexico, Massachusetts, Connecticut. Uh, Mark Perry has a lot of data comparing tax rates and you would business climates. And, you know, it's all very straightforward and very intuitive. Something else, though. Let's see. New York, Illinois, New Jersey, Louisiana, California, Maryland, New Mexico, Massachusetts, Connecticut. Only one of those states, Maryland, has a Republican governor and he's pretty soft Republican, Larry Hogan. Huh. Interesting. By contrast, Arizona, Idaho, South Carolina, Florida, Nevada, four of those five have Republican governors. Tennessee, five of six. Texas, six of seven. North Carolina, six of eight. Colorado, six of nine. Oklahoma, seven of the ten states attracting people, Republican governors. One of the ten states repelling people, Republican governor. There's another good handle on where people are going and where people are fleeing. Mama, if that's moving up, then I... This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Back in August, President Trump said, uh, in recent months, our nation and the entire planet has been struck by a new and powerful invisible enemy. We are delivering life-saving therapies and will produce a vaccine before the end of the year or maybe even sooner. Uh, fact check by NBC News, that's largely false. The president boasts of life-saving therapies, but critics argue there isn't enough evidence to back up this claim. There's also no evidence that an effective vaccine will be delivered by the end of the year. Yeah, they're so evidence-based in the D.C. press corps. HHS Secretary Alex Azar last night uh, on the uh, stockpile of doses to be distributed upon FDA approval. By the end of December, we expect to have about 40 million doses of these two vaccines available for distribution. 
pending FDA authorization. Enough to vaccinate about 20 million of our most vulnerable. Uh, there's also good news out of the UK. AstraZeneca Oxford team, their vaccine reportedly showing strong immune response in all ages. 13,000 people are taking part in the trial of the uh, AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. 60,000 people around the world are trialing it. And uh, the uh, British government signed a deal with AstraZeneca and Oxford to buy 100 million doses if the vaccine is successful. And so it seems to be more good news on the vaccine front, in addition to Pfizer, in addition to Moderna, which both came in at 95 percent effective. So now we just need to press on FDA when they move for approval to not let this get hung up in too much bureaucracy and uh, move this along. And then that gets to all sorts of other questions in terms of the rank order prioritization of distribution and the actual logistics of distribution. For more on all of these matters, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Terence Keeley, professor in clinical biochemistry at the University of Buckingham in the UK. And he's also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Dr. Keeley, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. So uh, your reaction to where we are with these uh, partnerships, AstraZeneca, Oxford and Pfizer and BioNTech and Moderna, what we're getting in terms of the performance and clinical trials and the expectation that uh, vaccines from one or more of these enterprises could be in the supply chains by the end of the year. This is very, very good news and very, very impressive. Uh, Normally, vaccines take years. And the speed with which these companies have developed these vaccines is extraordinary. But I would also want to make a further point that this is a tremendous tribute to the free market because particularly the first two companies that produced one, Pfizer's and their partners, BioNTech in Germany, they both produced their vaccines without taking money from the federal government, either in America or in Germany. And they did that because they believed that by investing their own money, they would maximize their own incentives and the market would work. For those of us who believe in markets, the success of Pfizer's and BioNTech has been remarkable. You must uh, be very lonely in the field of biochemistry as uh, someone who believes in markets. Oh, I think I'm the only biochemist in the world who believes in markets. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's an honor to have you. We found him. We finally found him. It is remarkable. And it's also, too, I mean, I I remember, uh, Dr. Keeley, you may uh, have this sort of uh, long-term memory as well, when uh, big pharma companies were the bete noir of our existence in the West. I guess not so much anymore. Well, no, not so much. In fact, today, of course, we all love big pharma. But of course, the time will come when we'll all hate them again. But the problem with big pharma, there is a genuine problem. Oh, no question. Um, Patents. Pharma demands, rightly so, by the way, pharma is right about this. They must have patents or they can't do their research and development because obviously it costs something like a billion dollars to bring a new drug to market, but it can only cost 10 or 20 million dollars, i.e. a tiny fraction to copy. So they must have intellectual property. But on the other hand, the temptation to exploit that intellectual property can sometimes overcome biotech and big pharma. So it will always be a love-hate relationship. Another testament to the market comes to us from uh, Lucera Health. Uh, They developed the uh, first home COVID test that was approved by the FDA, that was approved yesterday, emergency green light to the first rapid coronavirus test that can run from start to finish at home. Simple nasal swab costs uh, 50 bucks or less, according to the product's website. So that, that something else to uh, enhance the facility and um, the expense of testing. Yep. 
No one should be in any doubt that the only way to get new drugs and new proceeds like this is a free market. I mean, the idea that the Soviet Union or China would ever have produced a new drug is absurd. It is the free market that generates almost every advance that we have in pharmacology and in medical instrumentation. However, as I keep on having to say, the market itself can be abusive, and so there has to be some sort of relationship between the two. But we start with the premise that it's the free market that produces the goodies, and then we have to regulate it. It's that way round. Let's talk about uh, the rank order priority for the vaccine in terms of distribution. Most people are suggesting, including National Academy of Sciences here, that uh, it should be uh, the, the most vulnerable and like frontline healthcare workers should be first. So people in nursing homes, people with comorbidities combined with frontline healthcare workers. Uh, however, a group of researchers at Johns Hopkins and USC, however, ha- are arguing for vaccinating the young first. They have the least to fear from COVID, suffer the most under social restrictions, and it would do more to curb the spread and ultimately prevent more deaths. Do you find uh, one more persuasive than the other? in terms of approach? Well, of course, we all have to feel sorry for the young. I think the young have really suffered under this, particularly in Europe. I think our lockdowns in Europe may be more rigorous than yours. And I think the young have felt it very badly because the young are a particular social group. I think the honest answer to your question is that this is not a question that can be answered by any particular expert. This is a question that can really only be answered by a democratic assembly. It's for everyone because you don't need specialized knowledge to answer this question. This is a question that only a democracy can answer. However, I would say that the speed by which these vaccines are being produced means, and there are enough companies out there, that we shouldn't actually have to ration them for more than two or three weeks. We should really be in a position where the government, on behalf of us all, would make the decision as to whom they're going to prioritize. And I would hope that would be taken by a discussion with the House and the Senate, so this is a genuinely democratic decision. That's how it would be done in the parliamentary system. However, there would be no reason, it seems to me, why in parallel a private market should not also develop so that those who felt that they were unfairly biased against could then in any case do it privately as well. So basically all constituencies should be solved very quickly. Uh, There was another study on masks that was published this week. Uh, this from uh, Danish researchers. They uh, had about 3,030 participants randomly assigned to the recommendation to wear masks, 2,994 assigned to the control group. 4,800 people completed the study. And the upshot was 1.8% of mask wearers and 2.1% non-mask wearers were infected with COVID-19. The 95% confidence interval is compatible with a 46% reduction to a 23% increase in infection. So the upshot upshot is either modest or no benefit to mask wearing from this study, which comports with another study recently completed and published by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in conjunction with the U.S. Navy with the Marines as the volunteer subjects, both in the control and the experimental group. Um, so what are we to understand about mask wearing as it's being advertised as a panacea uh, in the West? Yeah, well, I mean, your question is very, very pertinent. Mask wearing has become a form of signaling of your desire to be associated with all the right side of this debate. And my feeling would be 
that that would probably be an appropriate signal to engage in until such time as the scientific evidence comes in. I am not aware personally of the very latest work on masks. So my position would be, but this is me, me as an individual, there is no specialized knowledge here. There can't be before the science comes out. It's another difficult situation because none of us wants to be guilty of virtue signaling. On the other hand, none of us wants to take gratuitous risks. And since mask wearing is not so intolerable, it would be reasonable to wear masks until the science is in. That would be my judgment, but that's just one man's judgment. There are 300 million people in America whose judgment is just as good as mine. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but um, yeah, I don't know if it's as good as yours, but yes, uh, your, your point is well taken. I wanted to get your reaction to something that Holman Jenkins wrote in the Wall Street Journal about incomprehensible mistake we never would have made with the flu, as he wrote. Confusing confirmed cases with true prevalence. The worst effect, he writes, about this obsession with confirmed cases, obsession by the media and thus obsession by the public, is it causes Americans to both overestimate the death risk from COVID, but even worse, causes them to underestimate by an order of magnitude the likelihood that the person next to them is a transmitter. Uh, How do you react to that assessment of confusing confirmed cases with true prevalence in society? He's 100% right. He couldn't be more right. There's no way we're testing, particularly in the early stages of the disease, there was absolutely no way we were testing anything. Whole orders of magnitude we weren't testing. I would like to say, however, and I'm not trying to make a partisan point, I'm just telling you how it is. Mm -hmm. There were countries such as South Korea and Taiwan and other Far Eastern countries who really were testing unbelievably swiftly, right at the very beginning of the pandemic. And their data is much more reliable because they really were on top of it. But you're absolutely right. In Europe or the United States, the data on positive testing is only a reflection of testing. Dr. Terence Keeley, professor in clinical biochemistry at the University of Buckingham in the UK. He's also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Dr. Kate Keeley, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Are you ready for this? Nicholas Kristof, writing in the New York Times. Nicholas Kristof, man of the left. When Trump was right and many Democrats were wrong. What? Trump has been demanding for months that schools reopen. And in that, he seems to have been largely right. Schools, especially elementary schools, do not appear to have been major sources of coronavirus transmission. And remote learning is proving to be a catastrophe for many low-income children. Yet America is shutting schools as New York City just did yesterday again, even as it allows businesses like restaurants and bars to operate. What are our priorities? It only took uh, Nick Kristoff about eight months to come to that question, um, one we've been hotly debating from the outset of the lockdowns in the spring. But uh, it is a momentous occasion when somebody from the New York Times says what when Trump was right and many Democrats wrong, and that New York Times actually allows it to be published these days. The overwhelming evidence and consensus about in-person education, and yet the lockdowns continue. The remote learning persists. 
maybe uh, Nick Kristoff will be the Pied Piper of elites in America. We'll see. For more on those elites in America, we're pleased to be joined by Lance Morrow, contributing editor of City Journal, the Henry Grunwald Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, essayist at Time for many years, and author of the soon-to-be-released God and Mammon, Chronicles of American Money. Lance, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. <clears throat> Delighted to be there. So uh, the, uh, you uh, had this piece in City Journal about uh, elite opinion and how it's never wrong. Nick Kristoff is saying, an elitist himself, that it, it was wrong in the case of uh, school closures. H- how do we square yeah, this? I, I read that this morning and was amazed. The story of the New York Times and its tolerance for any dissenting opinions, and particularly in the in the James Bennett case where it forced out the opinion editor simply because he allowed an op-ed by Senator Cotton to be published, didn't prepare me for, for Christoph this morning. That's really quite surprising, and I hope it means that they may be having second thoughts, particularly, I mean, these are the people who put out the 1619 uh, Yes, uh, rewriting project. of American history. Well, they want the kids to get back in yeah, school yeah. so they can learn that the true founding of the nation was in 1619. Yeah, right. The reason I wrote this column or or what I was thinking about in this column was that for all of my rather long life, I have been aware of this phenomenon, uh, uh, even way before I was born and all during the uh, 1930s. Winston Churchill, for example, in Britain was regarded as a a crackpot and uh, an extremist. Uh, by the all the uh, the elites and the fashionable uh, opinion makers and so on. Um, when I was a kid, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, who was only the guy who ran the biggest military operation in the history of the world to invade Europe and and defeat the Third Reich, was regarded condescendingly as a something of a, not exactly an idiot, but a a dullard and a man who uh, played golf and and read uh, Zane Grey Westerns. And then years later, when I was uh, uh, writing for Time magazine uh, during the Reagan administration, uh, Reagan himself was regarded the, the universal opinion on the left and among the these uh, fashionable people was that he was an idiot. Amiable dunce, uh, uh, to quote Clark Clifford, amiable, right? Exactly, amiable dunce, and uh, and he was no such. I mean, my father knew him, and and uh, uh, plenty of people, you know, who I knew knew him, and, and and knew perfectly well that he was no such thing, not even close that he was. Uh, but uh, what interests me is the way that people talk, and particularly people on the left who come out of the academy and uh, work in the media and so on, the way that they talk themselves into these narratives and they persuade themselves. Uh, the, the latest truly uh, egregious example is defund the police. Uh, and it's amazing to me that they keep churning out these narratives. They project these narratives, uh, which often prove to be, not only false, but disastrously false in the formation of policy uh, and and responses to problems. You write in your piece, if you toss ignorance and arrogance and snobbery into a blender, you're going to get a poisonous concoction. And you you suggest that after witnessing a vote of of now 75 million uh, Americans for Trump and and a few more for Biden, everyone would wish to uh, proceed with patience and care, and above all, with that virtue now all but extinct in American politics, 
humility. It was interesting you chose yeah. that word because it called to mind what Whitaker Chambers said in Witness, there can be no true humility and no true compassion where there is no courage. And it seems to me um, that, that you need to, we need to take one step back. We are a nation of cowards in so many ways, and cowards are incapable of humility or compassion. Yeah, I, I'm glad you picked that Whitaker Chambers uh, quote because uh, Chambers was an interesting case of, of uh, going against the, I don't know if your listeners uh, beyond a certain age or younger than a certain age, I'm sure they don't uh, know anything about the Whitaker Chambers out or his case, but uh, that was another example of fashionable opinion siding entirely with Alger Hiss, uh, whereas the truth was the reverse, that uh, Alger Hiss was, in fact, the communist agent that uh, Whitaker Chambers said he was. And uh, uh, But Chambers was... A, but that, that's a great quote about humility. I think that, that uh, courage and humility are, are exactly the point here. And uh, uh, it, it, this, this something has gone has gotten really turned upside down in this country in terms of um, our sense of virtue, our sense of what, how people, what the relationship of the individual to the country is. And uh, identity politics, for example, is uh, a really perverse, sets up a perverse relationship between the individual and the uh, and the country, and it's a very uncivilized relationship. It's a uh, it's it's uh, the, the identity politics is is uh, is not good for the country. It's very bad for the country, and it, and and uh, and I'm I'm sorry to see the country in in the grip of this stuff. And I don't I I don't know whether you can see the way out, but uh, it's it's very discouraging. Of course, this is. This is an abnormally um, uh, tumultuous kind of year, and so uh, it's difficult to get people to calm down and, and uh, start thinking about things like humility. But uh, He is Lance Morrow, contributing editor of City Journal, the Henry Grunwald Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and an essayist at Time for many years. His uh, soon-to-be-released new book, God and Mammon, Chronicles of American Money. Lance Morrow, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Delighted, thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Segwaying from our discussion of the elites with Lance Morrow, we turn to the thugs that the elites appease. For example, Antifa, 
and particularly elites in the media, but also well, politicians like um, potentially our next president of the United States, Joe Biden, who called Antifa just an idea. So did uh, Jerry Nadler, House Committee Chairman. Yeah. Um, this in the Daily Wire. Gabrielle Nadalis is a uh, uh, reformed and recovering member of Antifa. I was in Antifa. Their violence won't stop with 2020. Antifa of today is more organized and more dangerous than the Antifa I march with in California. And anyone who thinks a Biden presidency will help decrease Antifa violence is dead wrong, he writes. And he talks about the support from legacy media, which will help the fringe faction stay on the national stage. Antifa is here to stay, he writes. Take, for example, my experience on November 3rd when I went undercover with Antifa one more time. This in D.C. There were a few of our Biden supporters in the black bloc. There were few, were few, not a few. There were few of our Biden supporters in the black bloc. Instead, Antifa claimed F Trump and F Biden. As I marched behind a banner that read, burn down the American plantation. Antifa's enemy has always been American society. That includes much of the Democratic Party and the legacy media, which falsely believes Antifa to be their ally. If Biden does get sworn in on January 20th, Nadalis writes, Antifa will grow because he will continue to perpetuate the lie which fuels Antifa. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will continue to spread anti-American propaganda that America is systemically and structurally racist when it is the same America that elected them. Now, a Biden presidency won't decrease Antifa violence. If anything, the violence is just getting started, concludes Nadalis. For more on Antifa and political violence more generally, pleased to be joined by Jacob Zen, Jamestown Foundation's Terrorism Monitor Editor. Jacob, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. You're welcome. My pleasure. The uh, violence is just getting started, says former Antifa member Gabrielle Nadalis. You agree? I would generally agree, but uh, it's more than getting started because it already started uh, at least since 2016, but really escalated after George Floyd's death when there were protests, some of which, of course, evolved into riots around the country. And that's when Antifa violence really became uh, more widespread and more common. Um, And it's important to note that Antifa differs from some other organization because physical confrontation is part of its mandate. To be uh, Antifa, uh, you need to engage in actions. And one of those actions that you're duty-bound to do is to physically confront those who you consider Nazis or fascists, fascists. And the definition of Nazi or fascist then becomes very important. As far as I can tell, according to Antifa, anyone broadly in line with supporting Trump is a Nazi or a fascist, which leaves a wide a variety of people who can be physically assaulted. Right. And I mean, James O'Keefe over at Project Veritas has done some undercover guerrilla reporting on uh, Antifa, has gotten into some of the meetings, uh, had some undercover reports talking to members where they say what you're describing in no uncertain terms, uh, violence is not a bug, it's a feature. It's not a, a last resort, it's a first resort. Yes. Now, one way that Antifa differs from a typical terrorist organization that we might be familiar with, like ISIS, is that a group like ISIS tries to kill you. Antifa will generally not try to kill you, notwithstanding some exceptions that we've seen, like at the Portland protest where Aaron Danielson was killed. But Antifa will try to punch you and 
you know, stab you perhaps enough to try to deter you from being able to express your beliefs in the streets. And so they have all different types of methods to do that. Um, but one of the other methods, of course, is provocation in order to provoke you into attacking them so that they can video recording, video record it and then put that on social media to portray you, which would be a Nazi or a fascist or a Trump supporter or a police, into you know, doing something that looks bad and then releasing a video uh, of, 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 of their enemies doing that in the way to portray their enemies as the aggressors. So well, that's, a, that's an interesting sort of tactic that they use. It is. Something else that's interesting, and it was uh, mentioned by Nadalis in his op-ed, is the disdain they have for people that run cover for them, whether it's politicians or uh, so-called journalists. And I want to explore that with you when we come back. More with Jacob Zen. He's Jamestown Foundation's Terrorism Monitor Editor. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Jacob Zen, Jamestown Foundation's Terrorism Monitor Editor, and uh, talking about uh, what's next for Antifa and sort of by extension, violence as part of our politics uh, and the instigation of violence, uh, civil unrest. I, I don't know if we're going to have more autonomous zones, but uh, uh, Antifa is not going away, seems to be the belief. And if anything, it may be getting uh, more uh, uh, pronounced in terms of their activities, their criminal activities, their terrorist activities, arguably. And uh, the question becomes the appeasement and uh, the disdain that Antifa has for those that run cover for them, as I was mentioning before the break, uh, as Gabriel Nadalis, former Antifa member, mentioned in his op-ed. You know, F Trump, but also F Biden. Uh, and I guess by extension, F Harris, too. No fans of the establishment uh, uh, Democrat Socialist Party. Uh, in addition to the, the media that runs interference for them by running interference for people like Biden and Nadler, who characterize Antifa as nothing more than an idea. Um, how does that uh, uh, how does that influence Antifa? How do how do they propagate off the disdain they have for individuals running cover for them? Well, they have benefited in many cases from a media portrayal of them that they really don't engage in violence or that they're just an idea, but that's actually quite reductionist because ideas can be horrible things worthy of condemnation. And Antifa is not only an idea, but it's actually an organization that prides itself on engaging in actions. And those are physical actions in the streets, which can include vandalism, like breaking windows, but they're actually um, much more than that. And that's led to people not quite understanding what they're all about. And, and as you note, if you looked at individual profiles of Antifa, you'd find that politically most of them would have sided with Bernie Sanders historically, but he's, of course, not in the picture. And Biden being a left of center, but you know, generally centrist, is not someone who Antifa will politically agree with. So at some point, it's very likely that they will deem Biden a fascist if he continues with center-left policies. And then we'll have to see if a Biden administration, if he indeed gets inaugurated, will actually crack down on Antifa violence because they, uh, they will play hardball with Biden if he doesn't 
you know, enact the policies that uh, Antifa endorses. Right. Uh, Antifa is mostly peaceful, just like those mostly peaceful protests, as the media characterizes them. Uh, the the uh, speaking of hardball, the attorney general, the Department of Justice, I mean, uh, Attorney General Barr, has specifically mentioned Antifa on a number of occasions when it came to the uh, violence that was taking hold of in, in America's cities over the summer. And yet we haven't seen anything substantial in terms of prosecutions or even uh, more disclosure, discovery of Antifa's financing, Antifa's capacity, holding Antifa members responsible for the violence they initiate. Do you have any sense of where DOJ is on Antifa, where they are, where Antifa is on their radar? It doesn't seem to be a very high priority publicly, so I don't really expect uh, much more to come of it uh, from this administration, and that might be because there are you know, mid-level members in the, in the administration that are not particularly interested in prosecuting the group, or that even high-level members of the administration don't want to be seen as heavy-handed because that was part of the portrayal of the Trump administration during the past uh, eight months of protest. So, I mean, that, that can explain it. But either way, it just doesn't seem to be a high priority. And there's very little information that the government has given to reveal that it has deep knowledge of Antifa funding uh, networks and so forth. But yeah. I do imagine that the FBI does know that type of thing. What about Antifa in electoral politics? Uh, you had um, a situation in Portland where Mayor Ted Wheeler, who is um, certainly an Antifa sympathizer, even though they drove him from his home, uh, he almost lost the mayor's race, his reelection in Portland, to an out and proud Antifa member. Do you anticipate in um, maybe a bigger cities that have been completely turned over to the mob like Portland or Seattle or smaller communities where Antifa can uh, organize a presence that they'll try to pursue elective offices as was done in Portland to try to get the reins of power in local communities? Well, that, that might be a template for other places so long as Antifa becomes active. In the case of Ted Wheeler, one of the problems that he was facing was that if he had even not followed policies that Antifa wanted, or even if he condemned Antifa, which he did not really do, they would come to his, you know, apartment complex right. and, you know, throw uh, bricks and stuff at its windows. Yeah. So he had to it's move. Like very easy for them to intimidate people. Hmm? Yeah. Yeah. He had to move. He moved. Right. From, yeah. So, so if you're a politician, it's a very dangerous game to play because, you know, Antifa can force you to submit to its will. Well, um, well, if you're a politician who doesn't believe in the rule of law and won't scramble your own police force to protect yourself and others in the community from the mob, yeah, that, that turns out to be a bit of a problem. Right, right. And then they'll, you know, they'll smell blood. You know, if, if you show signs of weakness, they will uh, come after you. And uh, the only way for them not to come after you is to actually be Antifa and you know, support its uh, policy agenda whole scale. So that might be why that you know, politician came close to unseating Wheeler. And if Antifa numbers grow in any particular city, we might see that sort of Portland template take place uh, elsewhere. This is this is a revolutionary Marxist uh, organization that uses violence. And um, uh, and so the defund police movement, you know, Antifa is not going away. The defund police movement may not be going away either, um, despite the practical realities cities that embraced it are now facing, like Minneapolis, where they're. Uh, dangerously understaffed in terms of their police department. And after the city council supporting uh, a cut in funding for the Minneapolis Police Department, while well, me several members actually proposed eliminating it altogether, Ilhan Omar style, 
Uh, now they're actually infusing the M- Minneapolis Police Department with new money to try to go recruit police officers from outlying areas, the suburban areas surrounding Minneapolis, because they're understaffed and they can't police their streets and the residents are getting upset. Imagine that. Yes, uh, it's not too surprising that when you reduce the police presence that there will be an increase in crime. And it's not even clear that the reforms demanded by Antifa or Black Lives Matter will ultimately relieve to a reduction in crime, and I don't think the empirical evidence even you know, suggested they're right. Um, but uh, the, the problem that politicians, again, will face is that Antifa is serious when it says defund the police. They mean defund the police, or at least the police need to be ones that Antifa approved. And uh, politicians can't really do that because they'll, they'll end up losing votes from uh, the vast majority of non-Antifa members. Um, but if you, uh, you know, submit to the will of Antifa and promise to defund the police and you don't do it, then Antifa can get revenge and uh, revenge against you through various forms of uh, physical confrontation. Jacob Zahn, Jamestown Foundation's Terrorism Monitor Editor. Jacob, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. And it's hard to rely on my good intentions My head's full of things that I can't mention Seems I usually get the the podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Uh, here's a mom that's probably... Uh going to raise a future member of Antifa. Uh, gender roles, as we were discussing on yesterday's program with Sophia Carbone. This uh, from an advice column over at that leftist rag, Slate, Slate.com. Am I raising a mansplainer? Uh, this woman, mom, is uh, worried about her five-year-old son and his mansplaining. Uh, like that's a thing. My son is almost five, and he has always been very voluble, impressive, and also willful. For the, very, for the past few months, he's taken to interrupting us when we are talking and saying, actually, actually, he does this to both me, his mother, and to his father, my spouse. Thank you. It occurs when we are explaining things to him, and of course, he is always really wrong because he is four, and these are often topics that we have a PhD in, right? But they can't figure out how to raise their kid. These PhDs, yeah. Uh, It also occurs uh, nearly every time my spouse is telling him a story because he thinks the story should go a different way. How is it mansplaining to a man? I thought this was all about misogyny. But anyway, um, embarrassed by the mansplaining is how this uh, person ended her uh, plea for help. Uh, And so... Whatever clown writes the advice column for this leftist rag responding. I don't like to fall back on my personal parenting experience here, because if there's one thing I know for sure, it's that every kid is different. Sure, of course. Nothing is foundational with the left. But in this case, I thought I might reassure you to know that my kid went through a mansplaining phase around the same age, then grew out of it. Was it because we made it clear to him how much his actually ing annoyed us? Or did he just get over the thrill of ad-libbing, long-winded, patently wrong explanations? Uh, 
Maybe he grew up to be an advice columnist for Slate.com. We'll never know. The only thing that's certain is that you don't have to worry yet about raising a splainer. Maybe you can reframe some of these actions as opportunities to give your son a receptive audience for his cockamamie theories, at least some of the time. If you listen patiently and ask questions, his monologues could turn into interesting conversations. And if that doesn't happen, merely thinking of what he's doing as practicing his storytelling rather than mansplaining might be a step in the right direction there. And then you could raise a politician. You know, he's not mansplaining. He's just practicing running for president. He's got imaginary friends named Corn Pop and imaginary academic records. Uh, He pretended that he went to a traditionally black college, for example, and so on and so forth. Then he spent 40 years in D.C. and became uh, the president, uh, the vice president of the United States. And um, maybe the president of the United States. We're still waiting to see how that one plays out. This is Dan Clark. the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. A good piece by uh, Andrew Mikta at uh, Politico. He's the dean of the College of International and Security Studies at the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies. Talking about China, he made this uh, important observation, which really deserves more development, about what China is doing to try to uh, make a play to supplant America as the world superpower. Aligning with Russia, offering economic inducements to countries in Europe and Asia to consider breaking ranks with Washington. Obviously, what they've done is they've insinuated themselves in America that was being undone by the Trump administration, things like their Confucius Institutes and the like. But uh, he writes something else. What Beijing is offering is a deceptively compelling vision of the world, a free market for unfree people in which prosperity and individual freedom are no longer need to be inextricably intertwined. We give you prosperity in exchange for freedom, protection and prosperity in exchange for freedom. That is uh, an old um, Marxist canard. This is the historical materialism that uh, defined Karl Marx's philosophy. Uh, But it's been repackaged and represented. And in an era of covid, it's um, enjoying renewed popularity, it would seem, at least in uh, many urban centers and suburban. They're attached to suburban areas around the country. Covid fear opening up the prospect of uh, free markets for unfree people not just in Beijing. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by G. Patrick Lynch. He's a senior fellow at the Liberty Fund. Pat Lynch, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Declaration of Independence from COVID Fear is your piece at uh, lawliberty.org. I know you reference in your piece, you, you go through it in some detail, the great Barrington Declaration, which we've spoken about a lot on this show that has tens of thousands of signatories from medical health professionals to regular old Joes like me. But uh, to talk more globally and include the Great Barrington Declaration, if you'd like, talk more globally about uh, COVID fear and the implications. Uh, am I uh, overstating the case when I raise the prospect of Beijing, uh, of uh, what uh, Beijing is offering? 
Well, I don't know that you're overstating the case with regards to some of the alternatives that are out there and some of the alternatives in the way they would affect the political, social, and economic order in the West. The piece that I wrote uh, referenced the Great Barrington Declaration as a way to try to start a policy discussion. My concern, apropos of your reference to China, is that the policies that are being crafted right now with regards to COVID are not subject to public policy discussion. We're not we the governed are no longer part of the discussion. We are not allowed to present alternatives. We're not allowed to talk about the trade-offs that our current policies uh, are forcing us to accept. We're not allowed to discuss alternatives, and we're not allowed to do those things when we know a heck of a lot more about the virus. We know a heck of a lot more about treating it, um, and we know what the consequences and the costs are, um, and I try to outline some of those trade-offs and some of those costs, not just tangible, but also theoretical and philosophical in, in my piece. So talk about uh, some of the trade-offs that we're not uh, properly discussing. We tried to talk about them here, but your perspective on the trade-offs before us, if, because they don't seem to be obvious to uh, many millions of Americans uh, think that uh, they can um, select um, certain options without consequence. Well, I think it references back to your previous uh, discussion regarding elite opinion, that elite opinion has been accepted without any thought about the effects that it has on hundreds of millions of other Americans. So uh, there are health costs, uh, and as I referenced in the piece, you know, heart attack death rates have doubled. There are practical costs with regards to cancer screenings that are being foregone. There are practical costs with regards to educational years lost. There are practical costs for mental health. There are practical costs for friendship and everyday life. You know, the idea that Thanksgiving is now uh, a, a, a nothing but a threat to your health rather than an opportunity to share friendship and, and time with family, or even the, the basic idea that governance is a collaborative effort between those who are governed and those who govern us, not a command and control system, has now been thrown out because of fear of a, of, a, of a disease that's a legitimate disease and something we have to be concerned about, but something that we have to address in a very, very different manner to protect those most at risk and allow those who are less at risk to make reasonable choices about relative risk and move forward with their lives. Uh, it seems to me that half the country is happily skipping down the road to serfdom. It's not just fear adult. It's it's because they're fear adult. It's also because they have uh, gleefully accepted being lorded over by politicians to, to the point that no bad behavior by a politician is to be reckoned with. And I point yesterday to uh, the uh, Fox News affiliate out in L.A. reporting on Gavin Newsom and a bunch of California Medical Association yep, people yep. at the French Laundry having a, a heroic uh, dinner uh, where I'm sure they were game planning on how to save California grandmas and grandpas. You know, we, we don't we don't we don't need a Thanksgiving. We just have to we, we should be fortunate and, and express gratitude, give thanks for their giving. That That's enough. And it's the same thing everywhere. Thanksgiving meals are being shut down and regulations are being imposed in terms of how you live in your home. And uh, frankly, uh, with the quiet acquiescence of wide swaths of the population. Let, let me just up your Hayek reference with, with another one. I, I guess my piece is the protection of the Constitution of Liberty in response to your road to serfdom. Yes, uh, nicely done. You, uh, you just would, checkmated me. Would, you know, you get you got to play you got to play uh, a drinking Hayek game. Yeah, you know, there we'll, you we'll go. Stopped later and in reference to uh, use of knowledge in society. I think what you've touched on is, in my view, the, the real risk here. Speaking as someone who's really more interested in the politics of this, the fundamental nature of of a liberal society, and I don't mean le left liberal. I mean liberalism through classical liberalism through the great thinkers of the Western 
Western tradition through the, the Enlightenment is really the result of individuals being recognized as having rights and responsibilities. So if that is what our society is founded upon, if that's the nature of how we govern ourselves, how we act in markets, how we live in society, then that takes a mutual respect and a mutual trust between the governed and the governors. And the problem is that when you see what happens in California or when you see people getting haircuts like Nancy Pelosi or, or when you see Republicans or really anyone engaging in hypocritical activity. And we have you know, situations here in Indiana where the, our governor was seen you know, hugging people in, in, in a selfie photo without wearing a mask. And, and you know, publicly he's saying, oh, yeah, you've got to wear a mask or else it's your fault. This kind of public shaming uh, when the politicians themselves are acting inconsistently is, is really not productive. And it, it leads to all sorts of problems because people will lose faith in the, gov- I mean, the governors. And when that happens, social order breaks down. And that's a, that's a risk to all of us. And it's not a risk that we need to live with if, in fact, politicians treated people like responsible adults, let people assess their own risk and pursue those risks with a reasonable understanding of the rewards that come with those activities. It's, it's also such a tell, isn't it? Uh, I mean, how, how these men and women of science and data at the French Laundry, how concerned are they really about transmission? Well, I think they understand that none of them, I mean, so I believe that the birthday party was for one of Governor Newsom's uh, policy. Yeah, who, yeah, who's 50. And, you know, what's interesting, you know, I'll, I'll tell you something. So, it, it, and I cite this in my piece, so the CDC came out with a study on, on excess deaths. And excess deaths, there are about 300,000 in the U.S. as of October. Only 200,000 of those are, are directly attributable to COVID. Another 100,000 are attributable to other factors, some of which, I, at least I infer, and I think it's pretty safe to say, are the results of the policies we're following. And those, those excess deaths are targeted to people 30 to 50. So, you know, when people like Governor Newsom and his friends, they go out and have dinner there, they're, and they continue to lead their lives normally, and they go to gyms. And they, you know, they engage in the sorts of lives that we're not allowed to engage in right now. They're preventing those deaths to, 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 to or they're, they're preventing themselves from becoming unhealthy and following uh, down that path of suffering from an excess death. While the rest of us are now more at risk as a result of these policies because we're not allowed to make free choices. So there's a there's a double standard here that needs to be addressed. And, and, and it, it's about public trust. And as far as mask wearing indoors and that, that's how's that going to be enforced? Seriously. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the question is, yeah, I, I agree to the, the, the dismissive attitude towards enforcement. But at some point, if this goes on long enough, they may make an example of somebody. And then the, the real problem is when enforcement doesn't, in fact, occur. It just It's the same thing with businesses. They're shuttering. The real problem is when somebody rats out somebody next, you know, their next door neighbor in this uh, lives of others culture they're promoting. And uh, and then somebody shows up to. I don't know, ask you to put your mask on because your neighbor's concerned that uh, uh, you're going to spread the virus in the neighborhood or, you know, some other safetyist nonsense. Well, you know, and and this takes me back to this trade-offs question. So so on the one hand, this is a a serious disease that that certainly affects certain people and we have to take seriously. Does it merit the breakdown of trust between neighbors? Is it worth it for your neighbor to start snitching on you? Is Is it worth it? Is your neighbor at that much risk if you are, if you're engaging in certain activities? And is it worth the social costs that we're going to have to rebuild after this is all over? Uh, which is not to say, you know, I'm in public. When I'm in public places, I wear a mask. When I'm in my workplace, we're required to wear a mask. I wear a mask. That's, those are the rules, and I think those are reasonable rules. And I don't want to make any of my colleagues sick. If, if I've got this thing, I've got some older colleagues, I don't want to be responsible for that. But the idea that, that neighbors are going to start snitching on each other, that kids have to be pulled out of schools, that individuals engage in activities that are borderline ludicrous, that has that has consequences that aren't just 
government there broader and, and deeper than that, and they they will affect us for years to come in, in adverse ways. Oh, well, I was underground man long before it became fashionable, so I say everybody joined the uh, alienation from society, <laughs> and there I just came right back over the top with your Hayek reference with Dostoevsky, and you didn't see it coming. That's I know I'm, I'm well, and you know my Russian literature is not where it should be, so I'm going to have to brush up on that. All right, very good. Uh, G. Patrick Lynn, senior fellow at the Liberty Fund. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show david atkins is an elected member of the democrat national committee He's a contributor to uh, left-wing outlets like Prospect and Washington Monthly. He asks on Twitter, no, seriously, how do you deprogram 75 million people? Where do you start? Fox, Facebook? We have to start thinking in terms of post-World War II Germany or Japan or the failures of Reconstruction in the South. Boy, a big plans the left has for Trump voters. Just in case you thought that a uh, prospective Biden administration was going to deliver on that uh, unity that uh, Joe Biden prattled on about during the campaign. Tom Barrett also uh, signaling a kinder, gentler era, more responsible era with the prospect of a Biden administration. Tom Barrett, the mayor of Milwaukee, reacting to the Trump campaign, pursuing their legal options, which offends the left, I understand, and uh, paying for a recount in Milwaukee and Dane counties, uh, doing that yesterday. Here was the mayor of Milwaukee, Tom Barrett, reacting. It's not surprising um, after a failed presidency after a failed campaign um, that the Trump campaign would now seek to have a what will soon be failed recount effort. That should be no surprise to anyone. Why wouldn't President Trump end his presidency on one last failed attempt to divide us? Uh, Let's get reaction from our friend Hogan Gidley. He is the national press secretary for the Trump campaign. Hogan, uh, it's uh, nice that we have put the uh, Trump era divisiveness behind us, isn't it? Yeah, you saw him here in D.C. this past weekend. The Trump folks came to town. Now, granted, I hadn't seen that much Make America Great Again spandex in my life, but it was a good group walking through the city streets, and they were all excited and peacefully assembling and enjoying Washington, D.C., and then night fell, and Antifa and BLM and Defund the Police came out, and then so much peace and so much unity ensued (laughs) um, that they had to bring a lot of cops in. They had to break up a lot of fights, and a a person got stabbed, so it's all that peace and unity they were talking about before, and it was my understanding, you know, they if that's how they act after they one, can you imagine what had happened if that night the, the lead that Donald Trump held was still in place? You can understand, though, their confusion, the BLMers and the Antifa-ers, because they thought that the police had been defunded in D.C. So you can understand why they were surprised when they showed up. Well, that makes sense, because it's what I think it was AOC who said, how is it going to look when you defund the police like the suburbs? And that, to me, when people are outside eating and then getting physically abused, that, that's exactly like every suburb I've been in. 
That's how it works. Well, let's get the status on the counts and the cases. Uh, the recount will be uh, published by uh, Georgia election officials today. The Wisconsin recount in those two counties I mentioned at the outset about to get underway. What is your anticipation with respect to those the, the recount that's been completed and the recount that's forthcoming? Well, we'll see. Look, it's a pretty obvious they're finding votes for Donald Trump all over the place. Notice, though, that they weren't found at four in the morning or three in the morning, and there weren't hundreds of thousands of them that were 100 percent for one candidate. Recounting is a good thing, but an audit is really important because if you recount all fraudulent votes or if you recount votes that were cast illegally, that's obviously an issue. And let's separate the two. Fraud is when a dead person votes. I'm well aware of the fact dead people in this election didn't just vote. They actually requested mail-in ballots filled out mail-in ballots, and somehow got them to a post office or to a mailbox. Now, that might be the problem with polling, is that they're not polling dead people, because obviously they're a large constituency in this past election. Right. Those things are obvious, fraud. But when you count illegally cast votes, 2.6 million of which are in Pennsylvania, where they did not signature verify those votes that came in in the mail. That's a serious problem, and it needs to be addressed. And so if the recount uh, in Georgia is still is to Biden's benefit, it is, he still ultimately is the victor on the initial recount, are you guys going to litigate that and try to, to do that sort of audit that you're describing? We think that's important because the American people deserve a free and fair election, and they deserve to know that their election process is is legitimate, that they can have confidence in it, they can have faith in it. And right now, with so many irregularities um, and so many illegitimate votes and so many inconsistencies, that's just not the case right now. And so we want to make sure that happens, regardless of how this turns out. Um, Obviously, we need to make sure that that is the case going forward, whether it be for those Senate races coming up in Georgia or we retroactively take a serious look at what's going on, you know, in in um, in uh, uh, in the election that just happened. I mean, it's very significant because you have to have confidence that whoever ultimately ends up getting the most votes, that they got them in a way that's legitimate, because we saw what happened in the last four years when they tried to blame Donald Trump's victory on Russia, which was a total hoax and a total lie. It sows some seeds of serious discontent. It makes people go crazy. We can't have that here, and that's one of the things we're trying to prevent moving forward. Uh, I, I want to get to the, the big claims that uh, Sidney Powell has made that uh, other campaign surrogates, including Brian Trasher, uh, have made. On He made the other night on Newsmax that uh, you have the manipulation of the vote tabulation by either the software or hardware providers, the voting machine providers and, and software providers like Dominion and Smartmatic, or somebody exploiting those vulnerabilities in those systems. The big question that everybody wants to know, you know when is evidence that has been suggested the Trump campaign has going to be presented either in a court document or the court of public opinion? Yeah, that's up to our attorneys. They're rifling through countless examples of overvotes, of vote switches and machines and other things. And when they choose to actually present that, whether it be in a court of law or in in the media, is kind of up to them. And I'm not an attorney, so I definitely don't want to get into but I mean into I, that. I understand but, that, but but I mean you know Sydney Powell, and and I, I know she's a serious person. I know she's an accomplished appellate attorney and all of those things, and she's done a great job representing General Flynn through his saga. But I mean she is staking her reputation on these claims, uh, and and the so the evidence has to be there. I'm, and so I'm you know inclined to believe it is. 
Yeah, no, uh, look, I think we've seen a lot of evidence of, of machines malfunctioning and machines counting votes for Joe Biden that were actually cast for Donald Trump. We saw that in Michigan where the software switched all the votes, and we're taking a look at that because that software was also used in many other states around the country. Um, but, you know, we have to, we have to, it, it's in a court of law, so you have to know what you can prove, right? And if we can have the information, we have the data, and that's what Rudy Giuliani and that's what um, Jenna Ellis and that's what Sidney Powell are doing is combing through all that data and all that information that when they have it and they have it airtight, my assumption is that they're going to release that to the American people, release that in a court of law, and people are going to see just how corrupt some of these places uh, became in the last election. And, and if it's enough to change the outcome, then it's enough to change the outcome. Either way, we've got to know what happened. And, and uh, I assume the campaign, I mean, Trump, said, the president said a, a few days ago, you, you should have something, you know something, uh, be prepared to present something in a couple of weeks. I mean, that sort of indicates that uh, the campaign is on that sort of December 8th, December 14th timeline to prove up or not, right? Yeah, yeah. It looks like, I mean, there are some deadlines coming up that we have to make sure we meet uh, before the electors are, are put in place and before they cast votes, because, um, you know, you, you, you can't certify things. You can't send up electors if, if you don't truly know the outcome, if you don't truly know uh, what happened without uh, without a shadow of a doubt. And that's what these court cases are all about. Look, Joe Biden took, you know, or excuse me, not Joe Biden, but Al Gore <laughs> took a month and a half to get through his court cases. And for some reason, the big, big tech, big media and big corporations are saying, no, you're going to do it right now. You're going to agree that Joe Biden won. That's not how this works. Um, we've got to make sure um, that these votes were cast legally and lawfully. And we want, you know, um, the American people citizens of this country who cast legal ballots to decide the outcome of the election and not, um, you know, those 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 big um, government entities that tell us this is how it's going to be. He is Hogan Gidley, National Press Secretary for the Trump campaign. Hogan, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks so much. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. John Oliver is, uh, again, one of these insufferable hosts that was given a show on HBO, much like Bill Maher. His uh, show is uh, called Last Week Tonight. Not that I'm recommending it. He's supposed to be funny, allegedly. Sort of a daily show with a bit of a sharper edge. But uh, last year, very concerned, as the left was, about uh, Russian hacking into our elections. He did a bit of a dive on the integrity of the actual voting machines in this country. It was actually a decent piece. He spent about 20 minutes going into the particulars, providing some information that is verifiable, that's accurate, raising concerns about the vulnerability of these machines to manipulation, to hacking. He's focused on Putin, but obviously, and Russians, but uh, it could be anybody with uh, ill motives, couldn't it? The Senate report found that some of our voting equipment is aging and vulnerable to exploitation by a committed adversary. So tonight, let's talk about our voting machines. And first, you should know there is no single standard voting system. 
in this country. In some places, uh, you vote by filling out a paper ballot uh, and feeding it into a machine. At others, you press a button, get a printout, and then have that scanned into a different machine. Uh, and at still others, you press a touchscreen, and that's it. That's the whole voting process. And while that last option may seem like the best, it's actually, for reasons that we'll get into later, the absolute worst. There's also the threat of someone gaining control of them for their own ends, because voting machines are technically computers, and computers, of course, are hackable. And it can be far easier to control a machine than you might expect. Voting machine companies and election officials will tell you that hacks like that one take place in very controlled settings, and that it would be difficult to do that in an actual booth without people noticing. But it is not always as difficult to get some alone time with a machine as you might think. Professor Ed Felton of Princeton performs an exercise every election day. He drives around Princeton to various polling locations and he follows the prominent signs that say voting here days before the election and then he takes photographs of unattended voting machines just sitting there. And that's for him to document that anybody can walk up to these voting machines and anybody can manipulate them and nobody will know. So, to recap, I've now shown you how to hack voting machines in less than two minutes and how to find unattended voting machines. Mm -hmm. And he raised the issue particularly with the paperless, direct reporting electronic voting machines, the DREs, that don't leave a paper trail. Paperless, no paper trail. And remember, this is somebody, a man of the hard left who despises Trump, wants him to concede right now, doesn't want him even pursuing the claims of fraud or election irregularities, violations of the Constitution pending in courts around the country. This is what he said in his 2019 report addressing concerns about voter fraud with respect to the digital machines with respect to the voting infrastructure generally. Because what we have to do here is obvious. It's so obvious, in fact, even this guy understands it. One of the things we're learning is it's always good. It's old fashioned, but it's always good to have a paper backup system of voting. It's called paper, not <laughs> highly complex computers, paper. And a lot of states are doing that. Yeah. <laughs> He's right. That's it. He's just all the way completely right. Completely right, but he shouldn't prosecute cases now that uh, raise these issues that John Oliver raised last year because it wasn't Putin. Interesting. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Kenneth Timmerman, nationally recognized investigative reporter and war correspondent who was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006. He's the author of, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the definitive biography on Jesse Jackson Sr. called Shakedown. If you haven't read that and all of Jesse Jackson Sr.'s skullduggery and race hustling and poverty pimping, then I encourage you to read Shakedown. His uh, most recent book is a political thriller, fiction, called The Election Heist, but it's a fiction that uh, seems to mirror reality. Ken Timmerman, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. And so um, the uh, the issue is raised not by Sidney Powell or the Trump campaign legal team. How about by how about John Oliver, you know, court jester on HBO last year that um, speaking of uh, life living up to uh, the fulfillment of uh, concerns that it were uh, being that, that, that being addressed by John Oliver last year. You know, I was pretty uh, stunned to listen to those clips that you just played because that coincides with all of the research that I did for the election heist. I looked into the security of our electronic voting machines. And uh, I got to say, Don, John, he had it exactly right. The machines are vulnerable. Uh, as one cybersecurity expert in the U.S. government told me as I was, again, researching the election heist, if it is controlled by software, it can be hacked, it being a voting machine or anything else. And uh, you know, votes can be switched. 
by changing the software that counts the votes. That's the that is the plot in my book. And it looks like that may have happened in some places in the real world. When we come back with author Ken Timmerman, we're going to talk about uh, life imitating art in the form of the 2020 election imitating the election in his novel, Election Heist, right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, talking all things election 2020, fictional and real, with author Ken Timmerman. And uh, with respect to your uh, novel, did you come up with uh, uh, v- uh, vendors for both the uh, the hardware as well as the <laughs> software that uh, were as fantastical as the actual vendors in America? Well, you know, it's funny. I called the vendor Dominant Technologies in the book, in the, and the book went on sale in August, okay, three months before the election. It was finished in February of 2020, so well before this election took part. And there's a, there's a scene in the book – that's hilarious where one of the characters is is talking about the man who owns dominant technologies. He's called Richard Foreman Hall, and he's a billionaire hedge fund owner, extreme left winger who pledges to spend a hundred million dollars this year to defeat Donald Trump. (laughs) And of course there's nobody like that. No, no. Dominion voting systems. Yeah. but we did learn, we did learn that a gentleman named Mark Mollick Brown, uh, who is a member of the House of Lords in Britain, was the uh, primary, primary investment partner of George Soros. And he was the chairman of the board of Smartmatic, the one that helped develop the software used in all those Dominion systems. Yeah, uh, in conjunction with the uh, uh, Chavez regime in Venezuela. Uh, that's right. And by the way, what, what I have found well, it would be amusing if it weren't so serious. Uh, Dominion has been <clears throat> backpedaling big time in recent days. They're putting out all these, uh, uh, you know, fact-checking papers and saying, no, we don't have foreign money, and no, we don't have servers in Germany, and no, we're not tied to Chavez and all this stuff. Well, they forgot to mention that, yes, their main headquarters is actually up in Toronto on the third floor of a building right next door to the Tides Foundation, a George Soros organization. And the, the other thing, too, is the, this, they're dis- disputing things that one would think are relatively easy, easily provable or disprovable, which is that there's a relationship, a business relationship between Dominion voting systems and Smartmatic. Uh, and Sidney Powell has documented this, uh, the lead, one of the leads on Trump's legal team. But um, yeah, it, it's and there's reporting on this, too, from the foreign press that Dominion and Smartmatic were sort of, um, you know, kissing cousins in a business sense. <laughs> right. Well, uh, Dominion, uh, yes, they they uh, they all go back to a an organization, a company called Sequoia Voting Systems, oh, yes. and they were involved in the buyout of Sequoia and involved in co-developing software. So to say that they don't have a relationship is pathetic. It's ridiculous. It is not true, uh, and it shows how vulnerable Dominion feels themselves to be right now. They've got 
hundreds of billions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars on the line. And I think, you know, quite understandably, they're trying to protect their business model, which I think Americans are beginning to question quite seriously. It's it seems like the Trump campaign from some of the pronouncements from both Powell and campaign surrogates are asserting at this point, And it's an assertion. They have to prove it, of course, that where uh, vote tabulation was manipulated was uh, when the information, the data was uploaded to the uh, cloud based servers in Germany and Spain. It was at that point that the manipulation occurred, that the changing of the tabulations occurred. Um, it, what's your sense of the the election infrastructure going from uh, the hardware and the software to these cloud based servers uh, in, in, in Europe? Well, I, I tend to doubt that that is what happened. And I'll tell you why I tend to doubt that, because it would be easy, frankly, to discover if there's a discrepancy between the vote tallies at the precinct level uh, and at the county level where the, the information would come back from the cloud. You would discover it the next morning when the USB drives are brought in. And again, that's a, that's a process I describe in the election heist in quite some detail. Uh, you know, they actually have to bring in these physical drives and the drives right. have the counts taken from the machines on election night. And it's a, it's a backup. It is a added security to make sure that the vote tally is not hacked in transit as it's being you know, sent around the world electronically. So they could actually figure that out pretty quickly. I tend to think, and that's the scenario in the election heist, that the machines themselves were hacked when they updated the software. And uh, uh, the software has to be certified by Republicans and Democrats. They, they do a zero uh, run on the machines to make sure everything's calibrated properly, that it's counting properly. And they do this weeks ahead of the election. We're learning now in many Georgia counties that they were updated on October 31st. Right. And, and yeah. Dominion, and, yeah. Yeah. And that was a source of, a, you know, an a, a, a operator error in uh, allegedly in both uh, Michigan and as well as Georgia. Well, the ones in Michigan, the, those ones in Michigan was up. Apparently it was changed the day of. But Dominion is actually acknowledging they were uh, they they uh, uploaded new software on October 31st as if that was the most normal thing in the world. It is not. It is absolutely not the most normal thing in the world. As I say, those machines have to be certified weeks ahead of voting with representatives of both parties present, and apparently they were not. So that's where I think the hack occurred. If there was a hack, it was when the software was changed. Uh, I don't want you to spoil uh, your novel by giving us uh, how it shakes <laughs> out, but just uh, just 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 tell me, because since your novel is uh, art uh, preceding life, just tell us that it doesn't end with Nancy Pelosi as the president of the United States. Just please tell us that. It does not end with Nancy Pelosi as president of the United States. But I, I try to have a somewhat happy ending because I rely on characters, uh, supervisors of elections who are honest and who are inquisitive and look at discrepancies in the vote. And they start pulling the threads and investigating to see what actually happened. And ultimately, they do discover that the machines were hacked but they can't prove it in all the states that it happened. It's only in one state, but luckily that actually keeps President Trump in power. I'm afraid that in real life, that may not be the case. We have not yet discovered enough of these vote flips to change the outcome in any of the states. Uh, so I'm a little worried. Yeah, I, I would be as well. I, I am and it would be as well. 
Ken Timmerman, nationally recognized investigative reporter, war correspondent, was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006, author of Shakedown about Jesse Jackson Sr., which I recommend, and his political thriller just out uh, this fall, which I uh, we were discussing, is called The Election Heist, which uh, you can get at all the usual places. Ken Timmerman, thanks so much for joining us. Great pleasure. Show.com. As we uh, close out uh, the show on uh, this Thursday, uh, we noted earlier in the program that Antifa is very much with us and is likely to stay, perhaps even increase in profile. So is the purge for all the pro forma talk of unity and reconciliation from. Joe Biden. Uh, thankfully, uh, many on the left are choosing instead to be honest and talking about uh, continuing the purge, including, as we uh, referenced earlier in the program, a tweet from DNC member, an elected DNC member who uh, talked about the need to deprogram 75 million people who voted for Trump. David Atkins, his name. How do you deprogram 75 million people? We need to start thinking in terms of post-World War II Germany or Japan or the failures of Reconstruction in the South. Uh, Well, uh, we have another story coming from the world of academia. Unsurprisingly, this continues, the expelling anybody who voices a opinion that doesn't conform with the orthodoxy. And if you're particularly hard-edged about it, then you can be certain you're toast. Dr. Paul Ewell resigned as dean of Virginia Wesleyan University Global Campus, uh, also as a professor of management, business, and economics. Why the need for his resignation? He posted on social media this. Please help me with something. If you voted for Joe Biden, please unfriend me or reply that you are a Democrat and I will unfriend you. If you're ignorant, anti-American and anti-Christian enough to vote for Biden, I really don't want to be your social friend on social media. I wouldn't hang out with you in real life. I don't want to hang out with you virtually either. (laughs) You have corrupted the election. You have corrupted our youth. You have corrupted our country. I have standards and you don't meet them. Please remove yourself. He did say, please, you know, not the most uh, charitable social media posting. I'll grant you that. But is it a terminable offense? Well, of course, uh, if you put it in those terms about voting for Joe Biden and the implications of voting for Joe Biden. Now, if he had said the same thing about Trump, uh, what do you think the reaction would be? Would there even be one? Would we even be talking about Dr. Paul Ewell? Of course, we probably wouldn't, other than to say that he posted this thing about Trump and the university Uh, named a chair in his honor in response. Well, uh, instead, uh, he has been forced out because he, again, expressed an opinion that is out of favor. And, uh, you know, this goes to uh, something else that came out of the the hearings of Big Tech on the Hill the other day that we spoke about yesterday. Something uh, that um, Chris Kuhn, senator from Delaware, said in his exchanges with Jack Dorsey, the founder of the founder of Twitter, who then after founding Twitter, went to live in a forest. Apparently, he said to Dorsey, you do have policies against deep fakes or manipulated media against covid misinformation against things that violate civic integrity. That's the new standard for speech. Violations of civic integrity. What an interesting phrase from Coons. And then he went on to say, you don't have a standalone climate change misinformation policy. Why not? 
and uh, he then Dorsey just you know muddled through saying yeah we should uh, we prioritize different things we'll get to it and then Coons went on to basically say that anybody who disagrees with his position on climate change should be silenced in the interest of civic integrity. More Orwellian phraseology for your vocabulary, Winston Smith's out there. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again to round out the week tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.